Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 30 of Modern Outdoor Survival. This is another interview episode. This time it is with... Was a guy I've never met, not had any interactions with in person, but he knows some people that I know over in the United States. So this is also somebody that we've kept anonymous for his work reasons. He works in the armed forces and we don't need to know his name for the purposes of this interview. In this episode, we talk about SEER, Survive, Evade, Resist, Escape, or Survive, Evade, Resist, Extract, as we have over here in the uh, British military. This is a slightly different podcast where we're not talking about one particular element, but we're talking about that military survival and the military outdoor survival as a whole and this gentleman's experiences with it. So I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let you listen to the actual interview. So I'm sat here with uh, doing a virtual recording, a video recording with a guest on the other end of the uh, the interwebs there. So I'm not going to use any other name other than Ghost Element, um, which I'm guessing is not the name you were christened with at birth. <laughs> no, it's kind of nickname that I got kind of uh, start off as trolling and um, turned into <laughs> this. And now all of a sudden with the whole recce movement online that... Uh, now I feel like I'm trolling myself. <laughs> yeah, the, the Americans seem to come up with really cool nicknames for themselves. I mean, over here it's like Baz and you know, <laughs> Snowy and people things like that. There's no, you know, you guys have better nicknames all around. But yeah, that's that's all I'm going to give to the Colonials now. That's all I'm going to give you guys is praise. So, <laughs> uh, I, f- I feel like we earned it. We fought for those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, I'm not going to do that good because it's just going to be retorts back and forth. Right. <laughs> Let's stay on topic. All right. So as as best as you can with going you know, along with a caveat that I gave at the beginning of the show, what can you tell people about what you do currently or this, you know, the, the element we're going to talk about today? Um, really, I, I come from a military background and army long range surveillance. Um, after the army deemed they didn't need us anymore, I went to a reconnaissance, uh, scout team, still in the infantry world, still in Bravo infantry. Um, we're just another small group that conducts reconnaissance surveillance, really mm-hmm. kind of doing the same stuff, just not, uh, not as big of a budget. 
because we're no longer in the Cold War. We're no longer in the 20 years of fighting in deserts. We're doing something else now, apparently. Yeah, don't worry. There's always a uh, conflict with every 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, oh, I could go into that as well. Right. Yep, so, yep, yep. <laughs> and we, we were talking on another platform and with, a, with another group of contacts, and we were talking about that world. And during that conversation, you mentioned Seer. So Seer, S-E-R-E. So for because the majority of our audience at the moment is a civilian. There's a you know we're scattered all over the world. Our audience, but can you give just give people a rundown of what Seer is and your relationship with that? I'm trying to be very careful with my wording. <laughs> um, Seer is basically survival, escape, resistance, evasion. It's uh it's a training program. Um, U.S. Army's got a schoolhouse for it. They got two schoolhouses for it. U.S. Air Force has their own, and um, we, the Navy's got a, a, I guess, a schoolhouse too for like SEAL types. But basically, you're required to go if you're in some kind of job like Special Forces. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays they send pilots in the sort, um, you know, because your chances of being shot down behind enemy lines and having to survive or escape, it's it's I guess likely, right? So pretty smart for them to go through. Um, I had a buddy that was an instructor there at the the schoolhouse I went to. And, uh, he basically said, Hey, we're getting a bunch of what we call street to seat pilots, uh, warrant officers in training who come right off the street, right in the training. Right. And they're like six months in the army. Um, they can't lay nav. They, they can't evade. They can't do anything. We'd love to get some infantry types, especially with a reconnaissance background down here. And he basically sent me a message and was like, Hey, talk to the commander of the schoolhouse. And, uh, He'd like to offer your entire platoon slots. And it was right up our wheelhouse. We always took uh, C or B, C or A and B, mm-hmm. which was a lesser class, um, basically just on primitive shelters and, and fire starting stuff. But um, the class he offered me was full C or C uh, and involves every aspect of the four words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because those four words, they the separation between them is important sometimes, isn't it? That it's not it's, with, with the show that we have here. And then the work that I do, um, all everything we I do that involves survival and safety is based around the environment. So it's the environment that will kill you and your actions within that military survival and seer adds that layer on of, it's not just the environment, it's the people that are there. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And what they will do to you. Yeah. It's, uh, the whole goal of it is basically, um, I guess to show you how bad it does suck if you're captured, right? So, and what to do to not get captured. So, <laughs> basically, it makes you not want to ever be captured. <laughs> so, do they put you through then, and then you put them through once you're teaching a fairly hard time with regards to things like interrogation and stress positions and all the other stuff that people probably have heard of from TV shows and things? Yeah. Um, there's some good depictions you can get in TV for it, I I would say. But if you ever watch like the TV show Seal Team, they mm-hmm. have a couple, and it's a couple of first season episodes where they're they're they got a guy going through Seer School, um, but they don't get too far into it. But I mean, really, it's it's really good training, um, it's really good instruction. It's it's something that I would say if you're in the military, you should go to no matter what. But mm-hmm. a lot of people just aren't that die hard about living in the woods and getting dirty, <laughs> not all military jobs get dirty. 
but it's it's a it's a good experience. It's a good time, and um, a good bit of it actually is open source, and a good bit of it you know civilians can learn, which I think mm. you dive into that you know with fire starting shelters, water. Yeah, because it, just because you're in the services, it doesn't change the fundamentals of biology of physics. Uh, you're still a, a wet human body in a cold place. You're going to expire at the same rate as everyone else. Yep, no, no different, and uh, they just add a little stress to it as well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, do, do they completely separate out then the outdoor elements of it from the um, escape and evasion and the resistance to interrogation side of things, or do they kind of roll it all into one? Um, when you, when when you're being taught, they break it up. Um, you know, one part might be a couple of days, one part might be a week, whatever it might be, and then you know, ultimately, there's like any training cur- curriculum or or training program, you're gonna culminate all those instances. Mm. So, so you, you you teach some some skills in isolation as blocks, and then that evolves on into something else where you're running through the woods trying not to get interrogated. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, exactly. And do you have to cover all biomes and environments? Because desert survival is completely different to tropical sea survival, very different to Arctic sea survival, and so on. Um, So they hit on every single one, but the schoolhouse I went to and the time of year I went to, it was more... I guess desert temperatures, but wooded mm-hmm. environment. I mean, right. it was nothing to see 105 degree days, mm-hmm. 110 degree days, um, especially the heat index. But you know, it was it was hard to find water when I was there. Um, I had two different ways to, to purify water, but I couldn't find water. <laughs> so <laughs> it, was a, it was a little bit of a problem, but um. But yeah, I mean, they got other schoolhouses and other times of years that you can go, mm. um, different different locations. And then there's in, in the U.S. at least there's I know of one schoolhouse out in Washington State that civilians can go to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taught by a prior Rhodesian Light Infantry Scout. Yeah. Um, so that's a whole nother mess of history right there. That dude's probably a legend. But um, while I was with Long Range Surveillance, one of our NCOs actually went to that schoolhouse after Sear School. And um, they paid for him to go, and it was just like a uh, a more urban version. You started mm-hmm. off in wilderness and went to urban, but you got the cold weather side of it, you know. But I mean, we there's other schools I've been to, like uh, Army Mountain Warfare School in the wintertime. You know, that's all most part public knowledge, and that's way upstate in in Vermont, just off the Canada border. And that was in the dead of winter in February, where it's negative twenty at nighttime and just twenty degrees during the daytime. Uh, Fahrenheit for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that, that makes a difference, yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's really cold. <laughs> yeah. So it, there's, and, and you know, we and we hit on those, um, the layering aspects and and, uh, and whatnot in Sears School too. So they, they incorporate certain aspects of their schoolhouses in that, in that schoolhouse. Okay. So uh, the, the, there's, it sounds like there's some sort of common ground in terms of mindset and ethos and how you approach that problem solving. And it's not just, it, it's not the problems that you've been preparing for for years. It's the problem that suddenly arrives at half past two on a Wednesday afternoon when you'll go, you go from 21st century aircraft to Stone Age. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's pretty much when, uh, when the siren hits, you know, mm-hmm. what to do and, and how to survive and 
Um, a lot, a lot of roots of U.S. Army Seer School comes from the Vietnam era mm-hmm. when we had SF soldiers and and pilots and whatnot getting shot down and getting captured. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Nick Rowe is actually the one that created U.S. Army Seer School. Mm. Um, he did, I want to say, five years in captivity in Vietnam with torture wow. and everything else. He escaped finally, and um, I think he had, I want to say, he had one or two failed escapes prior to that, but. Um, there was guys that did more time than him in captivity that ultimately ended up dying there. And, uh, you know, he met those guys and that who had already been in captivity years before him. And he basically was able to escape and came out and said, Hey, we need a, a school for this. Yeah. We want to stop, stop other people heading to where I was. Yep. And cause there was, wasn't there an overlap from the second world war as well, where there was that point where they realized that it was all, both our, both our guys and the, and your guys over there where they realized it was, it, a small amount of training could me make the difference between a very highly experienced and trained pilot and valuable pilot just dying somewhere yep. compared to being able to make the way back to the fighting forces. Yep. I mean, yeah, I think our, um, our pilots alone, think about the money that the government spends training them, right? The experience mm-hmm. levels that they get, I mean, you're, you don't want to sacrifice that, right? You right. Don't want to just give that guy up and, and, you know, so, um, and we know both of our governments, you know, they, they really pay attention to how much they spend. They don't waste any money where possible. They're yep. very careful oh, with that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Trust me, I've seen some money wasted, but uh, we won't go there. <laughs> so, sometimes it's wasted on me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I'm the one wasting it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, when you think about it, I think, I think, uh, they they put a price on Seer School, mm-hmm. then what it costs to send a soldier through, and uh, I I don't remember what that price was, but it was it was much higher than I imagined it would be. Right. So you know, they're most uh most instructors are, are civilian paid civilian. I mean, they're they're contractors. You know, mm. um, there are military instructors, but um, you know, all, every instructor's got to go through it. So, mm-hmm. um, you get some good knowledge, you get some good experience. But I mean, honestly, I learned. I grew up in the woods in West Virginia in the U S and, and, um, uh, you know, I grew up deer hunting. I grew up fishing. I grew up riding dirt bikes, four wheelers. Um, you know, I, I learned how to build fires as a kid. You know, I knew how to purify water already. I I knew how to butcher deer, mm-hmm. you know, so going to seer school, it was, I didn't think there was be too much to offer for me in the survival portion, but the techniques that they taught me and the experience that I got there, it just further still confidence in me. Right. Yeah. You know, it's uh, I'm sure it's the same way when people go to your class, I'm sure in your classes you've had people that already had experience, but you might've taught them a different way and they look at it like, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. It was just, I think sometimes people just, if you find a way that works, you stick with that way. You don't really go looking for another way to do the thing you already know how to do. Yeah. So if it's something that's almost not forced upon you, but just like dropped in front of you, you go, Oh, there are more levels to this than I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I think my way just sucked before seer school. <laughs> we're, we're alive, you know, you know, it's not, it's not ultimately a failure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like on those, the environmental side of things then, and you, you mentioned shelters and fire and things like that at the beginning and some of the real basics where, what kind of, can you talk about what kind of things you're teaching in terms of shelters for say, you know, temperate environments. So you, you mentioned you're from West Virginia. That's you guys are a little bit warmer than we are. Um, you're a little bit further South, but 
lots of broadleaf woodland, slightly mountainous in places, fairly rural, but not entirely. It's remote in places, but it's not wilderness. Yeah. You know, so what for that kind of environment then? Because that's going to be relevant. I can join in on this from the UK side. Winter, what kind of shelter are you building for that? The winter for there, um, we have a lot of where I'm from over there. We have a lot of rocky area, a mm-hmm. lot of overlooks, a lot of um, just just shallow caves. Yep. <laughs> Ideally, I'm hopping in one of those things and building a, a front door to it, right? Mm-hmm. And and but we have a lot of big moss slabs, a lot of thick uh, vegetation towards the spring. So, I mean, it really depends on what time of year. Um, if it's winter time, I'm just finding logs and I'm probably doing some type of TP or lean to, but enclosed on two sides, you know? Mm. I've kind of played around with those a little bit out there, just having fun. Mm-hmm. My time in upstate Vermont, we did, I've spent summers and winters there. We went a little further into it with uh, insulation because it's much colder. Yep. And we've actually taken big, big slabs of moss and done two or three layers of it on a lean-to and just kept a fire going in front of it and been plenty warm. But in my job field, you know, we can't have an exposed fire. So for us, it's, you know, uh, Dakota fire pit or something. So we got to have mm-hmm. space for that somewhere. But um, ideally, my, my favorite shelter to build, if it's not brutally cold, is a lean-to. It's just quick, easy. If I got a forest area around me, I can still blend in and still conceal. Mm. You know, I can keep it kind of low. And those debris shells and those leaf litter shelters, they just disappear into the landscape, don't they? Yeah. Um, I actually got pictures I can send you of, of one I did in Vermont in the summertime with big fern leaves. And oh, cool. everything's so green there that you can't see the shelter from 50 feet away. Yeah, that, that <laughs> that's a real problem. We've had clients unable to find their way back to the shelter. Like, they go out... They go out and go 20 feet away to go for a pee in the middle of the night. And then they turn around and go, <laughs> it's just gone. It's just part of the shape of the forest. Especially if there's no moonlight that night and you yeah. can't catch a silhouette of it. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I've gone to the habit of getting people to um, crack a silume and put it in the top of their shelter because we're not trying to escape from anyone. So it's just, yeah. you will need this later. Yeah. Yeah. You will use this <laughs> or you will regret it. <laughs> yeah. Or you'll, I'll be over there in my four season sleeping bag. In yep. my in in my bivy, you know, don't talk to me. Just sort yourself sort your own problem out. Yeah. Yep. You better hope you hear me snoring so you can find your way back to the group. <laughs> yeah. If I'm awake, you're in trouble. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And so fires as well. You know, you got. You got I said, got to imagine that's that's going to be a real consideration because fire gives you so many things. It gives you heat. It gives you water purification. It gives you cooking. It gives you the ability to create tools and cut things to length in some cases. But it's also very shiny and hot and smoky and smelly. You know. So yeah. What's so Dakota fire pit? I know what it is. I've built a few, but this is an audio show. So can you describe a Dakota fire pit? So basically, Dakota fire pit is. A fire pit hole, but with a chimney attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, we usually dig, I'd say, depending on the roots that we run into and how hard it is to, to dig, we'll dig anywhere from a foot to two feet down. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not trying to make too big of a fire. We're trying to get a heat source, right? Yeah. So, and then from there, you can dig a chimney out directly next to it and mm-hmm. connect it to it at the bottom. Um, the chimney doesn't have to be as big around as the fire pit hole, but I like to leave the fire pit hole a little bigger just for feeding it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and if I got to put something over it to cook, I, you know, I can, I can layer branches over top of the fire hole and do whatever I got to do to set something on top of it for heat. Um, it's not a, I've used, I've used it to boil water before. Um, but it's not my go-to for something like that. No. Um, unless I'm going to pull coals out or, or do it a shallower, right. Mm-hmm. It can be a little tricky, but, um, if you do it right and, and get the chimney designed right, you know, it's, it's a great thing. And as long as you're under a tree of some sort to disperse the smoke, you can actually conceal your smoke pretty good too. It's surprisingly good for dispersing thermal as well, isn't it? It's not, yep. it's not necessarily the, the point of the survival we're talking about, but it's interesting information. It doesn't require that much leafy tree canopy to break nope. up a thermal signature. Yeah, it's it's uh thermals can be tricky to work with, and uh, depending <laughs> on what what model you have, <laughs> but uh, you know it's it's definitely we've played around with thermals from a hundred feet away to a quarter mile away, and mm-hmm. um, it's definitely a harder fire to pick up on. Um, you more so catch a reflection off a body that's been sitting in front of it for ten minutes, you know. Yeah, but it, as long as you're not hovering over top of it for any amount of time, you know, you're not going to glow to a hot any hotter than what you normally would. <laughs> That's good. It's it's with with that type of fire as well. You, you've got the concealment. You've got the 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 doing the bare minimum. Efficiency has got to come into all of this. I'm guessing at different points. You, you're working with a limited fuel tank of calories and time and just mental power. So you're trying to get as much done in those early stages. I'm guessing. Yeah. So um, for us, whenever we're, no matter what type of fire we're starting. We'd like to have a supply of wood on hand to yeah. feed it, right? So we got to keep going looking because you got to think each time we leave the group or or we venture out, it's the chance that we can be seen or or take contact, right? So um, there's a principle that we were taught in SEER, and it's basically finger width, firewood, um, pencil width, finger width, and wrist width. And gather exactly all three. What I say, and, and, and organize it right. Have it yeah. split up. Yeah, you got your piles. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so it uh, it definitely helps. But you know, it's we also try not to gather firewood right from where we're at yeah. if we if we don't have to because if we're making a hide site or something, we yeah. don't want it to stand out. Hey, there's a bunch of wood that was previously laying here on these leaves, and you can see yeah. the marks. But you know, or we don't want to rip vegetation away. You know, or, or dead hanging branches. We don't want to all of a sudden break a bunch of stuff and you know, expose ourselves even more. So, and for the training sites you've got, is there any, is, because you're not doing it for real and you've got to reuse that site. Do you have a sort of an ecological rule within it? Because it's a government agency at the end of the day that you aren't allowed, you're only allowed to do so much or are you allowed kind of to carry on? And, um, it really depends on where you're training at. We've okay. had training areas that told us no fires, but mm. You know, we're not in anyone's public eye and we got a fire extinguisher. So, yeah, you know, if we need to, we're good to go. But the the local training sites that we use, um, they're all OK with it. Um, it. It helps out that they're in the same world as us mm. um, job wise. Yeah. So it, it definitely helps that they know what we're doing. They know that we're we're responsible. So um, it's not too much of a worry there. <laughs> We've had <laughs> the training venues we have over here. So there's military training venues all over the UK. Um, they're mostly managed by um, a department you know, that's kind of like half privatized, <laughs> as you, you know, all these things are. And I've been doing things there as a civilian contractor and trainer. And they said, it's got to, okay, going through fire lighting and firecraft and 
these various things here, but you can only light your fire in these three places. Those three places are damp and out of the wind and in the wind with no resources anywhere nearby. But yeah, that's the only place you have to do it. But you have to show the best way to do it, but there. Yep. And you probably got no resources near it. All all the dead wood's gone. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. We get a lot of the military sites here. They're on um, open grassland mountains. And to make them forested and to make them look like East Germany, I think mostly, they planted up lots of Sitka spruce plantations and those blocks of green forestry plantation from the outside they look green but you take one step inside and they're just like hollowed out there's only green on the faces on the top it's just a brass a box of brown sticks when you get in the middle <laughs> with nothing left to burn nothing left to use to Jeez. make into tools or traps <laughs> yeah it's that's uh, gonna suck after a while you know it's a learning curve <laughs> we just you just keep increasing the invoice um but no one who pays me for that is listening to this. Um, <laughs> so no, that, that's good information to know because I was I almost got an opportunity right before COVID hit to go over there and do training, uh, and uh, we were going to mess with. I want to say it was some training detachment for SAS, the, and it was uh, we were going to do the long walk. Oh God, yeah, Penavan yeah. and all that yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, you you want to pack your extra long Achilles tendons for those. Yeah, um, that's that's pretty special. I mean, our mountains aren't big, but there are no trees on them whatsoever. So you're above the tree line from sea level, pretty much onwards. Uh, I mean, they only go up to about three or four thousand feet, but sea level is a half a day's walk away. So <laughs> you are you've got the same amount of cumulative ascent in the day. It's just you're not going to altitude. But they are. We're doing a video call, so I can show you. But they're literally <laughs> like that. If you tripped and fell, you'd be going down for a long way. Oh yeah, you're um, on for a ride. <laughs> yeah with a big pack on as well yeah, yeah. i mean the, we have a seer school in the uk uh for the uh, ministry of defense here um dsto or whatever they're called and one of the instructors from that john what's his name what's his surname it's gone up my head i'll insert it now in the podcast it's john hudson you idiot um <laughs> he has written a book uh, since and i think he was on a, an american tv show as well he was you know dude you're screwed or something one of those kind of shows where they <laughs> where they yeah they try and get out alive but he was a sit we have seer here although i notice it's survive evade resist extract here huh okay so i don't know whether that's to discourage people from escaping or what i've no idea or just sit there and wait for extraction um yeah, I don't know. Maybe your government's just more helpful in, in, in extracting. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they they try to tell us that our, our recovery rate of personnel, whether it be civilian or military, um, is something like 98% here in the U.S. Mm. And I don't know. I personally find it hard to believe, but that's a pretty high uh, success rate. I suppose Vietnam really highlighted that again because there's still a good long list of people that they just know they think they were left behind, don't they? They, yeah, they don't so know which camp they were in. From from my uh, my original unit I was with, you know, long range surveillance back in Vietnam, we were called LERPs. Mm. It was uh, long range reconnaissance patrols, mm-hmm. and uh, that's kind of where a lot of our SOPs and and mission come from, right? Um, our heritage and those guys from the secret war from over mm. the border, you know, Laos and Cambodia. Mm. There's still a good many of them missing in action that they don't know what happened to, <laughs> you That's... know, and whether they ended up in camps or just died on a hillside and they don't know where they're at, you know? It's hard to think that's only like 50 years ago as well. It's, you know, it's nothing in yeah. time. Yeah. But... It's, I mean, 
It's wild. Yeah. But you can imagine having statistics like that from Iraq or Afghanistan and what the press would do now with that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a different world now. Um, Completely. So like, talking of different worlds then, because the guys you're working with now are all younger than you, they've had different influences growing up than you had. Have you found like social media and YouTube and sort of the, the, the increased awareness of survival TV and things has affected the impressions of the guys that you're training? Are they coming with different preconceptions than somebody who grew up with your childhood maybe? or Because um, you can't move on YouTube without seeing somebody build a fort out of sticks and light yeah, a Dakota fire pit and whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of bushcraft companies out there now on, on YouTube. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you um, have a YouTube channel, you have a website, you're now a company. Yep, yep. <laughs> you know someone doing it. Um, I don't know really. Um, my younger guys that I've that I've trained in my unit, um, I'm finding that they're more inexperienced mm-hmm. than than what I am, what I was prior to Sears School. Um, you know, I I grew up gutting deer, cleaning fish, and and whatnot, and I at least got dirty in my childhood. I guess these guys never got a chance to re- to, to experience that. Mm. So. I got to go, I guess, more in depth when I'm teaching them from the start. I got to explain yeah. things a little more thoroughly. Um, you know, it definitely helps when someone does have that experience. Mm. Um, just to just to be knowledgeable in some aspect. I find it easier teaching if someone has a little bit of experience. But, you know, it's still not bad when someone doesn't have experience. You know, maybe I can just teach them a little more thorough when they don't have experience. Do they? Is there an element of them sort of ch- sharing the information with the other students then? A little bit as well if there's one person there who has more experience can they is there encouragement to them to share that with the rest of the group as well or is it do you kind of in, keep them isolated in the schoolhouse yeah um they they kind of enable us to help with the survival portion if if mm-hmm. we know a little bit mm-hmm. so you know one portion might be knots right and yep. me having been to mountain school we learn a lot of knots mm-hmm. for climbing and repelling so I knew everything they were teaching already. So mm-hmm. our instructor ratio was like one to six, roughly. Okay. For that portion. And, uh, or yeah, one to six. So it definitely helped out me knowing because I was able to help my buddies to my left and my right, mm-hmm. you know, learn how to do it. Um, when it came to butchering what you're eating, you know, we set, we learned traps and, and how to set them. But of course, like every training area you've experienced, the, you know, there's not much walking around. So <laughs> a lot <laughs> um, of people. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so um we're given you know an animal to butcher to learn how to butcher and mm-hmm. uh you know you're given a chicken a rabbit and um a lot i i end up eating a lizard too i was just that hungry for that but i caught a, caught a lizard and end up eating it and realized there's not much that meat not much meat on you know a eight inch long lizard <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but but as far as like um like the butchering of the chicken, right? Killing it and butchering it and plucking mm-hmm. it and cooking it. Um, I had experience because I grew up with chickens. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we still got chickens. Uh, I grew up turkey hunting, so I, you know, I still turkey hunt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had experience doing that. So that experience was very helpful during that because at that point, the instructors just tell you how to kill it. Mm-hmm. And they say, okay, have fun. They say, hey, just get a clean kill. That's, that's what they're worried about is a clean kill. That yeah. way that, you know, animal isn't, you know, an extended period of, of pain. So, um, it definitely helped at that point. And I actually ended up letting one of my guys on my team there, uh, kill and butcher it. And I just walked him through it hmm. and he got that learning experience, you know, whereas the instructors weren't going to 
do that. I, guess, I don't know whether it was just because they knew I was in the group or or what, but they're like, all right, man, it's five o'clock. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're going home. Here, here's your only meal for this week. And, uh, you know, we suggest doing a bone broth afterwards. <laughs> yeah. We strongly suggest that. Don't screw it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and speak, speaking of which, I've never had bone broth before that. And uh, I, I never knew you could get the nutrients like you could from a bone broth. Mm. It, it, I felt better from the bone broth than I did from eating a bird. Oh, yeah. It's, it, yeah. It, I know so many people are going down that route now with their diets. Just be, um, Yeah, the, you feel alive afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. You feel like you feel like this has done me some good. Yeah, you, you feel like a a whole new energy come over you. Yeah, but oh, um, man. but yeah, I mean they they definitely let us or, or let us help. You know, mm. so that's good. And I was because I, I I was asking that question about the YouTube and the social media influence because we see it a lot in our courses and there's become a shift now where people just want that it's that shelter building thing people have really got into that and that's building forts building dens building really elaborate camps um like there's one guy who over here but he think he's in one of the biggest like bushcraft youtubers in the world now but he built a bushcraft camp that had like a tower and walls and three buildings it was like building he's basically building a, a sort of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah building it like a, a 1770s fort you know yeah. <laughs> um <Nope. laughs> but when we go into that when we start showing people like just how much energy that will take how long that will take um and what is required in terms of resources like you see all of those trees there yeah you need all of those and they need to be felled and they need to be cross-cut and snedded and you need to move all that stuff out of the way just to do it that's that's your next two weeks of work just to get that or you can go and lie in that pile of leaves there for the night. Which one are you going to do? Um, yeah. It comes across a little bit in kit, and we were talking about this last week with our guest, Adam, who's, um, you won't have listened to this yet because it's not out. He's a first aid and um, emergency first aid instructor, and he trains everybody. Um, but we were talking about kit there and how there's a trend now to buy kit because yep. that's an easier and quicker way to solve the problem than go and get trained and go and get experience. Because Amazon Prime, next day, it's there. And you've got that thing now because it's now there. And you've got it with your own personal bit of paracord attached to it now. And that's yours. Um, We call it Gucci, Gucci Ness. And uh, it's a a fad. People spend money instead of, you know, spending experience. They're not earning experience. So just on like parallel to the the military side of things, because I know you, you know, you you have an adventurous life. Um, Do you see... a bit of that as well in the American outdoors world and the the stuff that you see there as well. Do you see the same kind of trends just where people are buying more kit and maybe worrying less about the training or thinking they've seen it because they've seen three YouTube videos. Ah, I know it now. Yeah, we, we see a good portion of it. Um, I mean, I even have friends that are guilty of it. And of course I'll make fun of them a little bit. Like, Hey, why don't you come out in the woods with me this weekend and, yeah. you know, learn some stuff and, you know, a few of them do take me up on it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, we definitely see a trend of it. And if, if you're on, I mean, you're on Instagram, so, I mean, I'm sure you see it all over the place and oh, yeah. on both sides of, of the, uh, ocean, you know, and, um, it's out there. And I honestly, I can compare it to this whole new movement where we went from the goon lifestyle to the recce lifestyle on Instagram. Yeah. What's that about? It's so, you know, Grantham. Yeah. I know Grantham. Yep. So he made a video a month ago on uh, his recce rifle. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it just started a new fad somehow, I guess. People just ran with it. And now all of a sudden, if you have a rifle and kit, but a rifle's got a low variable zoom mm. scope, all of a sudden it's a recce rifle made right. for recon. And um, me and a couple of other Instagram guys who come from the recce world are trying to correct it and trying to put good training value out there online mm-hmm. instead of uh, kit or weapons. Mm. Right. So um, we're trying to counter influence it <laughs> and, and get purpose out of it. <laughs> it just seems to be that all, all this, if people are do, just producing content online, and I'm, I appreciate the irony of doing this on a podcast, but yeah, um, <laughs> it seems to be like keyword based. It's like, that's the yeah. keyword we're doing this month. Okay. Everything has to be about that. There'll be another keyword in the next, yep. in the next quarter. And then that's what everything will be about for that. But yep. I don't think people's skills evolve at the same rate and their influences and they go out and buy locker full of stuff and now they've got that yeah. and they're kind of stuck with it. Yeah. People, people who don't have the experience are going to be hurting if they're ever thrown in a situation where they need it. Right. So, I mean, like we were talking about shelters a minute ago mm-hmm. with shelter building. Some people will just go in and leave. Some people will, will take the big shelter and try and build it. What I found when I was in Sear was building my shelter that first night I was on a bed of leaves. And every day from there out for a week, I was building my shelter and further improving and further improving. Yeah. And um, I found that it kept me sane during survival, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have something to do in survival, yeah, you know, you, you're probably going to get hopeless. <laughs> you're probably going to get a little depressed or a little hungry or concentrate on the wrong thing. Um, I found that staying busy definitely waved off the hunger. The the, yeah. the times we've done some training for people on sort of longer it's mostly pre expedition safety you know in case they got separated from the group or lost their logistics, but trying to get across to them that it's not okay and here are the four thousand things you'll be doing this day it's like no no you you have met your daily needs in terms of shelter and water and fuel and that kind of thing and you're rationing your food or you're able to forage for some food or trap or do something that way there's not a whole lot else to fill your day with. It's not like there's a million diversions. You won't be able to get your smartphone out and skip between three apps every minute. You will have to find a way to occupy your brain or at least find a really interesting rock in the distance to stare at because you're going to be looking at it for a long time. Yep, you're lucky if you got someone else in that situation with you to talk to. Yeah. But unlucky if you got to share food with them. (laughs) (laughs) Wait long enough, they just become food. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, or that. (laughs) Always have tasty looking hiking partners. Yep. Yep. And firelighting as well for, because we, when we teach firelighting, we, we go through maybe 20 or 30 different ignition methods and then we move on to the architecture of the fire. So we say like, this is how you make your first flame. You can carry 10 different ways of doing that. And then you make your, how you stack your firewood is based on the type of wood you have, the kind of fire you want to have. Um, you know, what you need to do, is it a signal fire? Is it a cooking fire? Is it just a general purpose campfire? And we then cover a few things about primitive firelighting techniques, bow drill, hand drill, that kind of thing. But we always say that the best way to um, get a fire is to not lose your lighter in the first place. Or if you have just <laughs> one firelighting method. And then we always put a caveat in that the only world really now where you're likely to maybe be ejected into the woods without a fire lighting source or without good planning is possibly military survival because you may be separated from all of your equipment aggressively at very, very short notice. 
So I know I'm pivoting back onto this, but with the firelighting techniques, how deep do you go into that? Or do you, do you just teach, this is the kit you'll have on you, use that? Or do you teach all sorts of weird and wonderful things? Um, basically, the way that we're taught and the way that I teach my guys is it, we're, we're issued a, a Gerber fixed blade knife, right? Yep. So we, we have that and we have a starter stick. That's actually kind of decent in length. It's it's maybe ten inches, eight to ten inches long. It's it's decent oh, wow, one okay. to get a good strike on it. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're given. And that's actually what I carry in my personal kit now as mm-hmm. well. Um we're taught how to use a base for fire starting mm-hmm. and a uh I guess you would call it like a wind block. So yeah. you'd have your base, but you have some kind of shape yeah, around it. And then yeah. Yep. And um Sorry, we're doing hand signals on video again. <laughs> And, uh, doesn't work on a podcast yeah that one's hard to describe <laughs> <laughs> the uh the method we like to use like we spoke about earlier is grabbing pencil width finger width and wrist mm-hmm. width so you have that but the trick to it is gathering a bag of uh how would you say curls of firewood so you shave your wood mm-hmm. yeah and get little shavings of it um our practice is to carry around a ziplock bag of that I like to take a ziplock bag, wrap it in duct tape. Mm. That way it's, it doesn't rip. And I'll carry that in my kit somewhere mm. in my pocket or something. And I'll keep a bag of dry tender, yeah. you know, from, from wood um, on me at all times. And with that, you know, even if it's slightly damp out, as long as we can find a dry piece of wood, even if there's mm. moisture in the air, we usually have no problem with that. We don't really do the magnesium sticks or anything like that. No. Um, we just use wood shavings, really. The test they test us with is, you know, you're supposed to always have them on you, right? Because it's one thing you're doing down there, right? You know you're going to be starting to fire at some point. So um, you keep it on you, and the test is a 20-minute test. Um, you get about 10 minutes to gather your firewood and organize it, break it down, make mm-hmm. your base. And you get about 10 minutes to get that fire going and get water boiling on it in a canteen cup. Okay. So it's it doesn't sound bad, but if you're stuck with an area mm-hmm. where there's not any wood at, it can suck. Yeah. you're running around like crazy but um it's a it's a good principle to have it's a, it's a good goal to have i feel like that's a very realistic timeline it is you know? um, getting water to the boil as well it requires a surprising amount of heat just getting a flame on from a pile of wood is relatively easy compared to getting that hot enough to boil half a canteen of water yep i found that if you're using the base and you got the uh you say you got an L-shaped piece of wood around mm-hmm. it, two pieces together to, to block any kind of wind or to channel yeah. wind. If you take your t- canteen cup, most canteen cups got uh, a handle, fold out mm-hmm. handle on or something. If you take it and rest it over top that wind channel and have yep. your coal pushed into that corner, you don't burn your hand as much when you go to pick it up. <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, people start making tripods and all these complicated hangers and things. It's like, no, it's got a flat bottom. Just shove it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we actually, we uh, speaking of something else, between, speaking of tripod, we actually took a... Um, old poncho that we had mm. old a poncho made a smoker out of it on a tripod with three layers with a uh, paracord and oh, it, nice. got to the paracord used as mm. like a, a grates like rose mm. and actually smoked a bunch of our meat and was able to sustain it and ke- keep it a little longer that's good because smokers are tricky to get right because if you're not managing your firewood correctly as well yep. you can end up with sort of a, a it goes from a smoker to a signal fire 
yep. pretty quickly about but, nothing. <laughs> and that's, that's the good thing about uh, being in a survival situation is you got all day to manage that firewood. You just better be putting it at the right rate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What else? Are you, yeah. What else are you being distracted by that should that's taking yeah. you away from this job? You had one job to do. It yeah. better be more food. <laughs> uh, yeah. And okay, so probably the last question before we come up to the end of the main bit here. Um, because I'll I'll get you to hang around for the after show and we can go into some other topics if that's okay. Yeah. What this is a difficult question for me because I'm I'm completely civilian, you know, I've done some work for the military, but I'm as my career in the military ended up with getting kicked out of the air cadets. Um oh you don't have the cadets over there, do you? It's like R O T C except you're a teenager. Oh, and, okay, they have, yeah. and they have separate for the they have separate ones for the navy, for the air force, and for the um, army. And I was kicked out of the air cadets one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's we've seen a surge over here, and I, um, just from social media and from friends over there. I know it's kind of the same there of people starting survival schools, starting training schools, starting preparedness readiness schools. And they don't, when you go through somebody's qualifications or the, you know, the, the about us section on the website, our cadre of instructors, when they say that so-and-so is a military veteran or they have military experience, and that is often used as the only thing that's the relevance to them being an outdoor survival instructor now. Whereas my friends in the military, I have to hold their hands literally sometimes when we go into the mountains. Yep. Um, and I'd, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but yeah, no, I, uh, I think the military title is nothing more than a title, right? So military experience, I mean, it's an awesome thing to have, but not everyone has the same experience in the military, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if I had, I not gone to seer school, I still would have had some kind of experience in the woods, but a lot of our guys wouldn't have, mm. um, in a job where they should have. Right. Yeah. So you gotta, you gotta dig in deeper with someone's military experience to really gauge them and feel them out. Um, over here in America, there's a lot of pride in military experience, right? So yeah. it's real quick and easy to throw that out there and no one question it because nobody wants to question that. So, um, it's too easy to have that conversation and ask, and ask the person, you know, Hey, what did you do in the military? You know, what was your MOS? What was your actual job? Yeah. Did, you, did you do anything interesting like this? And you can gauge someone out like that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think in the survival world with training companies, expect, well, not even that, just in the, the, the training world with, with firearms, you see a lot of people throw that military title out there and they just don't have it. You know, they were, they were a, uh, HR representative or, or <laughs> something like that, you know, and, and they just don't have the experience. They took yep. an NRA course and, and all of a sudden this certifies them, you know, or they took a survival course from someone else. And all of a sudden this survives them from, you know, this, this, uh, certifies them from a basic course, you know, like it's no, no. So do I, I, your, I don't like it. I, I'd encourage anyone to question me. Yeah. <laughs> well, saying, yeah, that's the same with those. Do your, do your research, do your, ask your questions. Yeah, yep. um, our professional website, the one we use when we work with the military and businesses and things that, that side of the business on my about us, it's got a link out to the organizations that. I did my qualifications with and different things rather than just saying I did this. It's like, yeah, go and check, go and yep. check for yourselves. Yep. But, yeah. So go and ask if you're looking to find training, if you're looking to find somebody to train with, I'd say, yeah, do questions and question what they are telling you, or even just ask a few leading questions. Anyone who's done this would know this. You know, yeah. And that kind of thing. 
And the way I look at what courses, right? So like, even if you've been through one survival course, one training course, or, or one course on anything, mm. if a course pops up in your area and you decide to take it, even if the instructor is bad, you're still learning what not to do, right? Yep. Or how not to teach it, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. You're still, you're still learning something. <laughs> so there's still, there's still some value there. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes what you learn isn't what's on the syllabus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I think that's a good place to leave it for the main show. We'll go and record the after show. And now I'm going to switch to a slightly different microphone and you'll hear me saying this. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to find out more about Modern Outdoor Survival and find the other episodes in this show so far, then you can go to modernoutdoorsurvival.com. There are also links there to our courses that we run. At the moment, we've only got foraging and wild food and some bushcraft-related courses advertised on the Original Outdoors website, but I think we're going to be adding some more in that are of maybe more relevance to this topic later in the year. But you can go to originaloutdoors.co.uk to see those courses. We have an Instagram account for the podcast, which is at Modern Outdoor Survival. We don't post every day on there but we do try and keep up to date with that and set, share some images from the show so at some point we will be sharing some of the images that uh, our guest this week sent over to us for us to use we might have to redact some of the unit badges and fate blur out some faces and things but that should be interesting uh, we have a support option for the show if you want to support us financially and help keep the servers running and pay for some of the overheads that we have for this show you can go to modernoutdoorsurvival.com forward slash support and there you'll have a link taking you out to Patreon. There are two options. You can pay just £2 per month and get access to this show and the after show and get early access and direct access to us or you can pay an extra £1 a month and have all of those perks plus access to all of the other shows that we do. So however you choose to support us, even if it's just with a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or sharing the podcast with other people, then we are grateful for it. And now I'm going to leave you with the three principles of modern outdoor survival. They are, number one, make good decisions at the right times. Number two, prioritize training over shiny new equipment. And number three, remember, Instagram is not your training provider. If you're a patron and supporter of the show, then now you can go and listen to the after show where we dive into these topics a bit further. And for everyone else, thank you for listening and we'll be back next week. Modern Outdoor Survival is produced and edited by Amy Green and is an original outdoor media production. <laughs>